0: I will please open to Philippians chapter 2 this morning, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Theologians call this chapter the crowning jewel of Christ in the New Testament. It is a diamond that sparkles brighter than any other passage of Scripture. It contains the strongest statement about the incarnation of Christ, God becoming man. You see, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he split history in two. We are in 2019 A.D., 2,019 years of the year of our Lord. It was kind of a big event, and the world cannot deny it. What year were you born in? Now, we're going to do it together. We're going to all say it out loud. So, what year were you born in? 1960. Are you ashamed when you were born? Okay, now we're going to do it again, but we're going to add two letters to it. We're going to say the year that we were born, and we're going to add the letters. We're going to say AD. Ready? Ready? Here we go. What year were you born in? 1960 AD. Anno Domini. 1960 for me in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that in the Old Testament they they calibrated the years based upon the reign of the king? In the sixth year of King Hezekiah, in the sixth year of King Josiah, for me it would come out something like this. In the first year of the presidency of John F. Kennedy. But we don't do that. We calibrate our birth year to Jesus Christ. That is really cool. It's pretty fascinating. Your significance of your existence is tied to the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, but listen carefully. As important as this is theologically, it is first and foremost guiding us to the strongest teaching on how to think and how to live. But many miss the message of how God God wants them to live because of two two reasons or two obstacles, and those obstacles are pride and ignorance. Now, I can help you with the one, but you're going to have to help yourself with removing the other uh, out of your heart. What you think about yourself... What you think about others, what you think about Jesus Christ, they're all tied together right here. And if you have spiritual ears to hear, you will get it. And like a butterfly that sheds its skin, you will be freed from pride to begin to live and to fly in the beauty of really becoming Christ-like. And you will discover that it is a beautiful way to live. Would you please stand with me as I read Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. If there be therefore, now remember two weeks ago, this is first class conditional if, that means it, it is so. It is so. It's translated properly, but we interpret it, we understand, because this is true, since this is true. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, and there is, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, on his own interests, but every man also on the things of others, on the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. May we pray. Uh, Father, teach us today. Teach us what it means to have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. Father, I pray that you would do spiritual surgery, remove the distractions from our minds that we might focus on this supreme message of truth and humility and love that you have for each of us today. If there be one that knows not Christ as Savior, may the Spirit of God convict them and draw them that they would be born again into your family today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me give you a snapshot picture of what these truths look like in everyday life, an everyday life situation. And it'll change and transform our daily thinking and living. It happened long ago. On a cold, dark winter morning, a soldier rode out of his camp, and he noticed a group of soldiers desperately trying to put a log on top of a wall that they were building. Each time they attempted it, the beam fell. The only thing stopping them from quitting was a corporal who was barking orders at them. The soldier asked the officer why he didn't lend a hand He replied, Me? Why, sir, I am the corporal. I give the orders. Without saying a word, the stranger dismounted and carefully took his place with the soldiers. Now, all together, boys, heave, he said. And the big piece of timber slid into place. The stranger mounted his horse and addressed the corporal. The next time you have a piece of timber... For your men to handle, corporal, send for your commander-in-chief. I will come and help. The horseman was George Washington, and no wonder he became the first president of the United States of America. Before we begin to unwrap the great truths in this passage, let me uh, set a foundation of learning. There are really three categories of understanding. The first one is the inexperienced the inexperienced. They don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. This is our young people. It's our singles. It's typically young parents, like those who are bringing their first newborn baby home from the hospital. They just don't know. Ever see a new parent? Ever see a new parent when the pacifier falls on the floor? (gasps) Boil the water! (laughs) Stick it in! Set the timer 22 minutes. Boil all the germs off. Experience comes. Two children. Three children. Four children. Pacifier falls on the floor. Three second (laughs) rule. Or as I used to do. Uh, Two licks for the girl, one for the boy. (laughs) Sorry, Scotty. (laughs) You see, that's the inexperience. And the second level is that of the prideful. They think they know what they don't know. In my life, I've been there. My first two years of Bible college, I thought I knew what I didn't know, and I was glad to share everything I knew, which wasn't very much. And then number three, the wise. They know that they don't know everything. Let me give an example. When I was an intern, I taught this book to my singles class. As a pastor, I preached through this book 1999, 20 years ago. As a young man, I memorized every chapter of the book of Philippians. I thought I knew it pretty well. For most of my life, I have viewed this chapter as four disconnected passages, verses 1 to 4 and verse 5 and verse 6 to 8, the kenosis passage, and verse 9 to 11. But now, now I'm learning and growing And I understand that that they're all connected, and that is what you will hear today. Look in your notes. The main point of this passage is not simply teaching us that God became man, though he did, but to show us that when God became man, he gave us the supreme illustration of how to think and how to live. And God is calling each one of us to change our thinking and change our attitude and change our our actions to match those of Jesus Christ whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been saved for 50 years i've titled my message christ like thinking and living now many in our church are already practicing many of these wonderful lessons but every every day <coughs> brings a new challenge to do it all over again and if you think you've already Learned it. If you think you've already mastered it, then you are in the category that you think you know, but you really don't know. You think you know it all, but this passage will show you that you don't. Why is it a new challenge every day? Because we're called to self-sacrifice. We're called to self-denial. We're called to put others first before ourselves, before our opinions and our demands and our goals. And that's very hard to do. I mean, it's hard to do at home. It's hard to do at church, at work. Look with me at verse 5. It is our memory verse for the month you'll find in the bulletin. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Would you repeat that with me? Let this mind be in you. One more time. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What, what does that mean? What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? I used to think it meant don't have bad thoughts. I used to think it meant don't say bad words. I used to think it meant don't do bad things. But that's not what it says in this passage. Look in your notes. It means to look at people and think what Christ would think. It means to look at problems and choose the attitude Christ would have. It means to look at a situation and respond the way Christ would respond. And here is a man who had the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, one cold winter morning. It's General Washington, Commander-in-Chief, and he's looking at a mid-level officer and he sees how wrong the situation is and with the mind of Christ, with the attitude of Christ... What does he do? He climbs off his high horse and he identifies with his men and he serves them and he humbles himself. Do you see it? Do you see a picture of Philippians two five? Do you see the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ? Do you see that that two to three times every hour, sixteen hours a day, depending on how much contact you have with people, you're going to have the opportunity to choose thirty to forty times a day. You're going to choose to have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ as you interact with other people, or or you're going to assert yourself and your opinion as the only valid one. Paul, what are you talking about? What kind of attitude do you want us to have? Described in verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. In verse 4, he says, I want you to care for the interests of others, I want you to benefit others, live to benefit others more than yourself. Don't push what you want. Push for what others want. Now, how can you do that in marriage? How can you do that at work? How can you do that here at church? By self sacrificing, by self denial, by living with humility. Why are we to have this attitude? We're told in verse 2. We're told to have this humble attitude because, verse 2, uh, that you would be like-minded, have the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We're told to have unity in the church because of this. God's people are like-minded, bent on exalting one person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we be motivated to make the unity of the church a priority? Verse 1, because, because Christ has saved you, because Christ is your friend, because the Holy Spirit is your partner, because the Holy Spirit cares for you. And Paul finally says, because it'll make me happy, fulfill my joy if you do this. And so the unity is extremely important to God. Uh, we're, we're talking about a good church here. We're talking about a, a godly church in Philippi, a church that is extremely generous, a church that is always obedient, a church that is doctrinally sound and morally pure, devoted followers with quality leaders. They're good people. They're good people with strong opinions. They're good people with strong preferences. They know what they like, and what they like is bringing conflicts. It's bringing contentions. It's bringing disagreements. The flow here is obvious. It is supremely important to Christ and the Holy Spirit that the church be united. It is important so much that Paul says, it, this fulfills my joy. He said, you're not doing it. Chapter 2, verse 14, you've got, you got grumblings and you've got complainings. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, you've got these two ladies and they're at odds. Set aside your contentious, negative, and critical comments and you come together as one. Look back at page to chapter 1, verse 27. What are they supposed to do? Uh, He says, I want you to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is why you're to be united. You have one mission. Your contentions are not because you are just a little more right than someone else. No, no. Paul says your contentions are because you have pride in your heart and you need to display humility. Now let me give you the supreme example of humility and that is Jesus Christ. And church family, I I think you get this. I think you get this. Tonight we're going to have a Vacation Bible School preparation meeting. 280 people, 280 teens and adults have signed up to serve for Vacation Bible School. And then we have another uh, uh, a couple dozen for our teens. Over 300 people. You get it. And you're to be commended for that. We strive together for the gospel at Vacation Bible School at Teen Week. Because we want... Kids to be saved, teens to be saved, and growing in the Lord. I'm telling you, this message will shake up who you are at your core. It'll transform your personality. How? Because you're going to begin to think like Christ. You're going to begin to live like Christ. Paul says it's time for you to get off your high horse and start helping your friends. Start helping your coworkers. Start helping your family. Start helping your fellow worshipers at Valley Forge Baptist. The message is for all of us. It's for pastors. It's for deacons. It's for members and attenders and teenagers. And it's for visitors. God is speaking. And let's listen and grow. Now let me summarize. The message is to a good church just like ours. Christ and the Spirit desire unity in the church. And unity is defined in verse 2, same mind, same love, one accord. And that path to humility, the path to unity is humility, verse 3. Humility is nothing more than, you put others first. And now he's going to transition and say, follow Jesus. Now let's apply it. You know, we have a junior church for children. It's going on right now. And that junior church doesn't look like this church. It doesn't look like this church, and that's okay. It's different. We have a bus church for teens. doesn't look like this church. That's okay. It's different. We have teens and, and single ministries, and, and it looks different than what we do here, and that's okay. But we're striving together for the gospel. If you want to show love and the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, you're going to support our junior church. You're going to support our Forge kids. You're going to support our teens. You're going to support our single ministries. That doesn't mean that they're going to do everything the way you would prefer, but you set aside your preference because why? Because we love them. We love them. Does this make sense? Paul says, church, family at Philippi, let me give you a model to follow. Let me show you what humility looks like and how it works, let me give you a heavenly illustration of a divine being who left heaven to put you first. You talk about getting off your high horse and coming down to serve No greater illustration than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our model to follow. and He became, he became followers of us and the Lord. Look on page three. After the Last Supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And this is what he said. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now listen, he said, if ye know these things, happier are ye if you do them. The God of the universe, the God who made the dirt, the God who made the dirt is kneeling and washing the dirt off of the disciples' feet. That's humility. I preached a baccalaureate at a Bible college a number of years ago, and I gave every graduate a little towel with the year of their graduation, and I put "delighted to serve" on it. And after the message, Dr. John Getch, the vice president of the college, said, "Graduates, go get your towels dirty. Go get your towels dirty. That is, go and serve." Now the passage has two themes: it has like-mindedness, and it has lowly-mindedness, and they go together. So Paul is now going to share the descent of Christ. He's going to show us the steps of humility. He's going to show us God coming from heaven to earth and then he's going to say this is the model for you to follow. Verse 5 is the transition from the exhortation to, of being humble to the illustration of how to be able to do it. And the illustration is Jesus Christ himself. And as, as deep as the passage is theologically, the main point is to show us how to treat others. How to treat others at home, at church, at work. And today we're going to get a 35,000 foot view. And then in two weeks, uh, we're going to we're do some deep sea diving. And we're going we're to dive in deep and, and seek to understand what's being said here. But let's follow the steps of Christ, his descent from heaven to earth, and see what we can learn from it. The humility of Christ, of God becoming a man. First of all, humility is an attitude. It's an attitude. Jesus descended from heaven to earth, verse 6. Look what it says. Who being in the form of God, that means he is God, yeah, this word refers to the divine nature. Jesus is God. Verse 6, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, form of God means the same thing as equal with God. Exactly equal. Humility is an attitude. And Jesus chose an attitude. You loosen your grip on your possessions, on your privileges, on your position. Jesus had all the rights and privileges of God. And he chose an attitude of humility to serve others. Is that, this is in the heart. Do you have an attitude of humility in your heart? Number two, humility is an action. Jesus, he set aside some of the divine attributes. Verse seven, but made himself of no reputation. It's called the kenosis passage, the emptying. Humility becomes action. The attitude says, I will not hold on to these things. I'm ready to let them go, and the action is doing it. He emptied himself. He set aside some of his divine attributes. Did you see it in Washington? The commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. He descended off his high horse, but he could have said, Corporal, I command you to start helping those men. And he would have been within his right to do that, right? But he chose not just the attitude of humility, the action of humility, Humility, and he came down and he helped those men. Jesus gave up a lot, didn't he? But that is what humility does action for others. What are you willing to give up for others? Number three, humility serves others. Humility serves others. Jesus became a slave. Verse seven, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. It's another step down. Another step in the descent. Jesus became a slave, a doulas, a servant. Do you see this? Jesus, he went from being a king to becoming a slave, the lowest among us, washing the disciples' feet. You know it can be difficult to serve. It can be difficult to serve. But it's so easy to criticize those who do serve. Ever hear someone say, And if you haven't become a pastor, you'll hear it. Ever hear someone say, if I ran that nursery, if I ran that school, if I was a teacher, if I ran that choir, let me tell you how I would do it. Stop criticizing and start serving. Well, I used to. Well, I used to. You know what that means? I used to means that you're not doing anything now for Christ. Humility serves others, and it does it right now. Number four, humility shows compassion. Shows compassion. Uh, Verse seven, he became a man. He was made in the likeness of men. He became like us. Jesus understands you because he became one of us. He is our sympathetic high priest. He knows how we feel. Humility, it cares for other Christians in our church family. What is humility? Humility is an attitude. It's an action. Uh, Humility uh, comes all the way down to serve, and it shows compassion to others. Number number five on page four. Humility seeks complete understanding. It seeks complete understanding. And we find that in verse eight. And being found in fashion as a man. Well, didn't he already say that? Well, this is a a little different. It's a little different. He became like us. Jesus understands us. He became one of us. But here is total identification as a man. The people who saw Jesus thought of him to be no different than them. I mean, they looked at him and they didn't think he was God. They thought, this is a man. This is a man. Over the years, there have been missionaries that so identified with the people on the foreign field that they would actually Dress like them. They learned their language. They learned their culture. They dressed like them. They tried to look like them so they could connect with them, so they could share the gospel with them. We'll see an amazing story in a couple of weeks. And that's what Jesus did. He is identifying with us, He is connecting with us. Humility seeks complete understanding. And total identification. Is that how people who disagree with you feel about you? Are you being humble with people you disagree with? Do they know that you care? Do they know that you're trying to understand them? That's humility. Number six, humility makes the total sacrifice. Death. Death. Verse eight. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Jesus went so low that he was willing to die for you and me. That's love. You say, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because we are all sinners. We're all under the penalty of sin. That penalty is death. It's eternal death. We can't go to heaven with our sin. And so God let his son come into the world, live a perfect life. He died upon a cross. He died for us, rose again to give us Forgiveness. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. He he couldn't just suffocate, he couldn't just be poisoned or strangled. He had to die and shed his blood, and he did the total sacrifice. What a model to all of us. Humility goes as far as it has to go to meet a need. Oh, but there's one more step of humility. You say, how how can there be another step? Humility will experience great pain for others. It wasn't just death. Look at the end of verse 8. Even, even the death of the cross. This is the worst form of torture death man has ever invented. The Persians invented it. The Romans perfected it. You can read the graphic details from a physician's viewpoint and you can only try and imagine the the agony our Savior suffered for us. I've given you a website to search. What is humility? Well, it's an attitude. It's an action. It comes all the way down to serve. Humility shows compassion to others. It seeks complete understanding. It makes the total sacrifice. And finally, uh, humility will experience great pain for others. That's the mind of Christ. That's the attitude of Christ. Do you have any areas of humility that you need to grow in? I do. I do. And I think everyone here does as well. So let's, let's go ahead and make an honest assessment of ourselves. I've given you some statements there, and you can put yes or no by them. I've turned them into questions here on the screen. Am I self centered? Am I self centered? And if you, say, if you say no, you just have the wrong answer on your paper. You can just put a big X through that. Wrong answer. Go back, read the passage. Do I prefer to be served? Do I demand my ways? Push, push, push. Am I obedient to the Lord? Yes, I think this is something we all need to be growing in. Being a little more like Jesus Christ. He is the greatest example of humility. We are called to follow him. Uh, What is your level of understanding? I've been through all three of these, inexperienced, prideful, and hopefully growing in wisdom. But I still have a lot to learn. I still uh, desire to hear from you. I put my email there in your notes. It is swendell at vfbt.org. I know that I don't know everything. And you can write me. You can write me. But if you do an anonymous letter, if you do an anonymous note on the connection card, I won't see it because the receptionist is going to throw it away. My secretary is going to put it in the trash. You don't communicate anonymously. That's not Christian. We don't do that. There's my email. We all need to be growing. All need to be learning. Now, here's what happened to me when I was inexperienced in the faith saved two years, just graduated from high school. A well-meaning couple convinced my pastor, who was also young in the uh, ministry, convinced my pastor to let him take a church van, a church van load of people, to go to the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts. Uh, Many of you did it back in the 1970s or 80s. Would you raise your hand if anyone here went to the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts? Okay, a number of us did that. And I was recruited to go with this group, and I learned a lot of good things. I learned a lot of helpful things, some biblical things. But mixed in with the good was something called Gnosticism. You know what Gnosticism is? Gnosticism is is secret knowledge. Nobody else sees it. The book of Colossians was written to warn Christians to stay away from secret knowledge, Gnosticism that nobody else can see but this leader, this teacher. But I didn't discover those errors until many years later, even as a pastor. So I walked away from that conference misguided. One was on the topic of fasting. I was challenged to make a promise to fast once a week. I was only 17, I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. My first semester of Bible college, I fasted one day a week, every Monday. You say, weren't you a Pharisee? No but almost. You see Pharisees fasted two days a week, I only fasted one. And so I didn't eat from Sunday night to Tuesday morning, every Monday. And since I was fasting, it was on my mind, I went into the bookstore, and the college had a bookstore, and began buying some books on the topic of fasting. And I began reading those books, and it taught me what the Bible has to say about fasting, and and it's not to be uh, systematic, it's not to be routine, it's not to be ritual. When you fast, you're supposed to fast in response to something, a response to something like a burden, like a trial, like a crisis, like a, uh, you're, you're, you're at a point in a crossroads and you have to make a decision and you need special guidance. And so over the years, when we have started a major ministry, I say, church family, let's, let's fast. Let's fast and pray about this. Let's get the mind of Christ, the direction of Christ on this. And so when I learned the truth about fasting, what I had to do is I had to, I had to set aside what I had been taught. I changed to become more biblical. I went, went from being inexperienced to prideful to more wise in my understanding. At the conference, we were also pressed to make a vow about praying. And here's how it came out in my life. It was the last day. It was either a Friday or Saturday, the last day of the conference. Here's how it came out with me. God, God, I will pray X amount of minutes a day, and if I don't, you can take me home to heaven. And it was called a vow. Do you remember that? It's a vow. You make a vow to God. God, I I will pray X amount of minutes a day, and if you don't, you can take me home to heaven. What an immature vow I made. I was young. I was inexperienced. Aren't you glad God didn't follow through with me on that vow? If he did, the pulpit would be empty today. I wouldn't be here. He would have taken me home to heaven years ago. But as I grew in my faith and my spiritual understanding, I I learned that prayer, I learned that prayer is not just over a prayer list. And that's good. It's good to have a prayer list. We give you one every Wednesday night. Uh, and, And the Apostle Paul, he had a prayer list. He talks about it in the New Testament. But prayer, prayer is, it's conversation with God. It's talking to God. I mean, it's talking to God all day long. It's like breathing, When you're alone, even when you're not alone. Fiddler on the roof, and you'll see the father, Tevya. He's just talking with God all day long. He's asking him questions. Conversation with God. As I grew in my spiritual knowledge, I abandoned those poor decisions and those immature vows. Christ like thinking and living. Humility is being like Christ. Humility is putting others first. Humility is it's growing, it's changing, it's becoming more like Christ in your attitude and your actions and how you interact with other people. Instead of pushing what you want, you push what they want. Instead of concerned about your interests, you're concerned about their interests serving others. It's a great passage. Now, you cannot begin to grow in humility until Jesus Christ is ruling in your heart. And so, today is the day. Open your heart. Receive Jesus Christ. Determine, I will follow him. I will follow him. I will live his way. And that will bless others and God's own heart. May we pray. Father, thank you for our time to... To be in your house to open your word and to hear the message of Jesus Christ to each one of us. Father, I thank you for speaking to my heart, convicting me of my sin. Now help me to have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. And now for my brothers and sisters in this auditorium, may we truly seek to be changed into your image. Father, I pray you'll do the spiritual work. We will yield to it. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You'd say, Pastor, if I died today, I know I'd go to heaven because I have received Jesus as my Savior. He's my Lord. I, I, I may not remember the date, but I remember the time I gave my heart to Christ. I became a true and genuine Christian. If you had that confidence and assurance that heaven is your home, would you simply raise your hand all over this auditorium? If I doubted, I'd go to heaven. God bless you. You may put your hands down. You say, Pastor, I, I think I'd go to heaven. I'd hope I'd go to heaven, but I'm not sure. I have doubts. God wants to take away your doubts. He's inviting you to join and become part of his family. How do you do that? Believe that Jesus died for you. Believe He is the Son of God. Believe that He rose again. If you sense the conviction of sin and God working in your life, say yes, yes to God, yes to Christ whosoever shall, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can do that right now. If that's you, if God is touching your heart and you want to be saved today, would you lift your hand and say, God, yes, I want to be saved today. I'll lead you in that prayer. Anyone at all. I want to receive Christ as my Savior. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Anyone at all. God bless you. In the balcony, you may put your hand down. Anyone else. I want to be saved today. I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. Would you pray with me right now, down front? Thank you. God bless you. Pray with me right now where you're seated. Call upon the Lord. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart. Become my Lord and Savior. I receive Jesus Christ today. Heads about, eyes are closed. Christian, this message is primarily to you. Do you have the mind of Christ? Do you have the attitude of Christ? Are you putting others first? Are you obeying the authority that God has put in your life? Are you contentious and critical? Or are you cooperative and spiritual? God, help us all. Help us all, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand together, we'll sing a song of invitation this morning as we sing 215, My Jesus, I love thee. As we sing together, let God have his way in your life. If you want to see a pastor, pastors, wife pray the altar, you come as we sing. On the first verse, my Jesus, I love thee. Second Corinthians 5 is a great chapter. I read the opening verses of this chapter to hundreds of people at funerals. Incredibly comforting words. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I, I don't know of any greater truth to tell a grieving family of a Christian that your loved one Your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, your sister, your brother is alive with the Lord, conscious and awake, rejoicing and out of pain. They have left their tabernacle, verse 1, this earthly house, and now they exist in a spirit body that will one day be reunited at the rapture with their own glorified body at the resurrection. Weeping is temporary. Why? Joy will come on resurrection morning. And from there, Paul launches into a series of motivations of why we should serve Jesus Christ. We don't serve him in order to earn a ticket to heaven. We serve him out of love. And so we find these motivations in this chapter, the presen- presence of the Lord, we will be with the Lord at death, uh, verses 6 to 8, the judgment of the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ spoken in verse 10, the terror of the Lord, uh, coming wrath upon those who refuse to believe in Christ. There are several terrors, the terror of an untimely death for a carnal Christian, the terror of not being saved and enter the tribulation, which is described in Revelation 6 to 19, and of course... The greatest terror of all is hell itself. But then he switches to the love of the Lord, for the love of Jesus Christ constraineth us. And then we are ambassadors of the Lord, verses 19 and 20. And so right in the middle of all of these great reasons for serving Jesus Christ, with all of your heart, is this unusual but familiar statement. And many of us have memorized it as teenagers. We've sung songs about it. And this verse inspired my title for a short message tonight. And that is this. If you are what you were, then you ain't. If you are what you were, then you ain't. Bad grammar. Good theology. (laughs) Would you please stand with me tonight as I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you are what you were, then you ain't. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, look at this. All things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Drop down to verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors Christ, As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him, for the Father hath made the Son to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What wonderful truth. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the testimonies we have heard tonight of your power working in lives. We desire that for each one of us. If there's one here tonight, they're not sure if heaven is their home, may they see Jesus. May they see his love. May they understand that as sinners, we need forgiveness, and Jesus can provide that forgiveness, the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you are what you were, and that would be we're all sinners, and if we continue in that vein without God moving into our life, then we're not the children of God. We're not. Uh, There is evidence that the God of heaven has come into your heart. There is evidence that the God of the universe lives inside of you, and that evidence is represented by one word, and that word is change. Change change. And that's what he says here in verse 17, a, a change occurs. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. When I uh, became a Christian at the age of 15, began to grow in the Lord, and it took some time, but as I heard the Word of God, then as I began to read the Word of God myself, and, and was attentive, as as uh, Kevin and, and Herb mentioned in their testimonies tonight, God worked in my heart, and, and I just wanted to do it. Ever God would have to do with my life. And so there was a time that I, I surrendered to do whatever God would have me to do. And I, that included going into the ministry. Just graduated from high school. I met with my pastor and he counseled me to go to Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. I said, Great, I'll go. Where's Missouri? And uh, didn't know, hadn't been out west before, Uh, I stepped onto that campus in August 1977 along with my brother, uh, Jeff Berg, which was Josh's dad, became my roommate for three years, a couple of other students from my church, a girl from Michigan we had not yet met, Jackie Gibson from Michigan, who soon became, who later became Jackie Wendell. I have to show you a picture, she had a big fro back then, Uh, but uh, (laughs) don't you love yearbooks? That's what they're for. Oh, and, and, and more than 2,000 other students from around the country and missionary kids from around the world. It's quite an experience being on campus with so many students with so many different backgrounds, but all having one thing in common, loving Jesus Christ. Uh, the evidence that Jesus Christ was in our life is this word change on church outings, and there's a bunch of churches in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, on these church outings, the buses would come and pick the students up, take us to church, uh, take us to different events, and and college students, we would like to sing. And we would sing, and sing, and sing. I learned a lot of new songs that I had never heard before. And a lot were sang with a bit of a country twang, being there in Missouri. Uh, but one was based on this verse. And it, and it went something like this. Oh, the things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. How many of you ever heard uh, that song? Oh, look at that. Look at that. All right. Uh, You're going to sing with us, but I've asked some men uh, to come on up here and uh, help me out. I I actually sung this in my office, and uh, it didn't sound too bad, but the pressure of all you looking at me, I just, (laughs) I thought I couldn't do it by myself. So, these men are going to come. And join me, and you'll you'll it's it's uh, it's one verse, one chorus, and uh, it just repeats itself. So it's kind of easy to pick up. And let's see who's missing. James, is James still here? Is he in the nursery? Ha <laughs> ha You can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> Alright. Alright, gentlemen, come on in here. Come on in here close. Come on in here close. So it's a verse and it's a chorus. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore, and it repeats a few times. Uh, there's been a great change since I've been born, since I've been born again. Second Corinthians 5, 17. So gentlemen, uh, getting closer. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna cut off this mic. <laughs> Now, <laughs> okay, we're going to sing together. Here we go. Ready? Ready? The things I used to do Don't do them anymore The things I used to do Don't do them anymore The things I used to do Don't do them anymore There's been a great change Since I've been born again There's been a great, great, change, change, change Since I've been born There's been a great, great, change Change since I've been born again Great change, 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 since I've been born. There's been a great change since I've been born again. Let's hear it for that oh, no. Good job, guys. Uh, there's some more verses I thought I would do as a solo. Uh, <laughs> the things I used to say, I don't say them anymore. Uh the music I used to sing, I don't sing it anymore. And then the guys will break out into a, a verse, "The girls I used to date, I don't hate <laughs> them anymore." And they would respond in kind with, "The guys I used to date, I don't date them anymore. Because there's been a change. There's a change. God, God moves in. And when God moves in, look what verse 17 says. It says, "If any man, any woman, any single, any teenager and any senior saint, if they're being Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And he talks about being reconciled to God. Uh, God, God moves in and he turns the light switch on in your heart. You're no longer in darkness. You see things you never saw before. You see truth. You see righteousness. You see love and forgiveness. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, normally we stay in one passage, tonight we're going to look at a couple of them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they knew exactly what he was talking about because he had written to them in the first letter. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, he says to the Corinthians, "'Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived.'" Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, look what he says, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, that's the past, the past, such were some of you, but ye are washed, that's the present. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, the city of Corinth would be a combination of of Las Vegas and New York City and Atlantic City, kind of all rolled together. And that's that's the city that Paul went to uh, there in Greece and led people to Christ, and they came out of that 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 lifestyle, but then change happened. Change happened, and they were forgiven. None of them would have qualified to be leaders in this church prior to salvation. But when God moved in, God forgave them, and He empowered them, allowing some leaders to, to be raised up, pastors and deacons and teachers, for the glory of God. And but by the grace of God, we wouldn't have any leaders here either. But by the grace of God, I want you to consider the evidences of your faith. God says, before you take the Lord's table, examine yourselves. We're to look at our hearts to see if you are a genuine Christian, to see if you are following the Lord closely. And if you've drifted from Christ, if you're following afar off, if you're not close to the Lord, tonight ask yourself the question who moved? It's not God. God wants to have a relationship with you, God wants to be a part of your life. God wants to fill your heart with his love and forgiveness and truth. And so evidences of, a, of salvation, first of all, is a changed life. Now here in this passage, 10 specific sins in verses 9 and 10 are listed. He says, don't you know that if your life is characterized by these sins, that you're not going to heaven? Now, wow, wow, what a statement. You cannot inherit heaven. You're not going to heaven if your life is continually filled with these sins. Now, can a Christian commit any of the 10 sins listed in verses 9 and 10? What's the answer? The answer is yes. Yes. We're not perfect. Uh, Remember the bumper sticker, Christians? Not perfect, just forgiven. Forgiven. And so what we have here is when God comes in, He forgives us, but we still stumble and fall. Hebrews 11 is filled with a number of people who have committed some of these sins listed here. But our life is not to be characterized by those sins. Uh, People who believe you can lose your salvation stumble over these verses. Don't misunderstand. We are not saved because we stop sinning, because nobody would be saved. We are saved by God's grace. We are saved because God reaches out to us and offers a gift, and that gift of salvation. And salvation, being saved from our sin, is tied to the Son of God coming into the cross. He's buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, and that allows him to offer to us the gift of heaven, the gift of eternal life. And so you have to, you have to understand that if your life is now filled with these sins, then as a Christian, God is calling you to turn from those sins and come back to him. Or you have to conclude that you were never a Christian in the first place. Oh, you made a profession of faith. Oh, you might have got baptized, but really it's not a baptism if you're not saved. And so the first evidence of our salvation is the fruit of a changed life and good works. So good works do show up in our life. Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. An evil man out of an evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of his heart his mouth speaketh. Here's another evidence of salvation, the fruit of soul winning, the fruit of soul winning, the fruit of leading other people to Christ. Jesus said in this parable of the, of the sower and the seed, the four soils, he, he said this, but he that received seed into the good ground, and that's the heart, a heart that hears and believes, he that heareth the word and understandeth it, he beareth fruit and bringeth forth, some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. You know what he's saying? He's saying is if you get saved, you're gonna bear the fruit of other Christians. Sheep bear sheep. Is that right? Sheep bear sheep. When was the last time you led anybody to Christ? When was the last time you tried to lead anybody to Christ? When was the last time you planted a seed to lead someone to Christ? When was the last time you you, you handed out a, a track or gave an invitation to church? Where's the fruit? Where's the effort to even try? Wasn't it wonderful tonight to, uh, to hear uh, Kevin saying he got saved and his second year of salvation began to, he was taught how to lead people to Christ and leading all these young men to Christ there in, in, in college. And then Herb saying, you know, once I came here uh, or even at work, sharing my faith, that's evidence, evidence of salvation. Here's the third one, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, if you know it, say it with me, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's self-control. Now, if I asked your husband, if I asked your wife, if I asked your parents, if I asked your children, if I asked your coworkers, does, does this person display the fruits of the Holy Spirit in their life at work or at home? What would they say? If not, you need to do business with God tonight before we partake of the Lord's table. You want to show gratitude to God by being right with God. And we do that in prayer. Ask God to cleanse you of any sin that's hindering your fellowship, your walk with him. Ask God to empower you to obey his commandments. Jesus said, if ye love me, keep what? My commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Evidence of salvation. And so another evidence is that we partake of the Lord's table. So just a few moments, we invite those who know the Lord as their Savior, those who are seeking to be obedient to him, walking in truth, sought baptism, we welcome you to partake tonight. May we join together in prayer. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he brings change into our heart and life when we believe that He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind. Thank you that He brings eternal life to the heart that receives Him as their own. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Tonight, if you're not sure that heaven is your home when you die, the Bible says that you can call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. And if you sense a a, a tug in your heart tonight, that tapping is the Spirit of God bringing conviction, reminding you that you cannot enter heaven with your sin. You need forgiveness. We all need forgiveness. And God is willing to forgive you. But there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And so you can do what I did many years ago during an invitation prayer and call out to the Lord and ask Him. Ask Him to forgive your sin. Tell Him that you believe that His Son, God the Son, the Son of God, died for you and rose again. And based upon His work, He gives you the free gift. If you'd like to do that tonight, I'll I'll lead you in prayer. My prayer won't save you, But right where you're seated, from your heart, you can pray. You can ask and invite Christ into your life. It's not joining the church. It's not getting baptized. It's not turning over a new leaf. As you've heard tonight, it's faith. It's following. It's a commitment to be a genuine Christian. Would you pray with me tonight if that's you? Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. All of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Tonight, I commit my life to Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you prayed with me and meant it, I want to pray for you. I'll not call you out. I'll not embarrass you in any way. I just simply want to pray for you. Anyone at all, would you just raise your hand for a moment? If you just pray with me and meant it, hold your hand up high for just a moment. Anyone at all, I pray with you, Pastor. I meant it to receive the Lord as my Savior. God bless you. You may put your hand down. Anyone else, I pray with you tonight, and I meant it from my heart. Anyone else? Our Father, we thank you for... Your love that is overflowing in this place. The love of Jesus Christ, the love of God. Thank you for changing us from who we now are in the family of God. Bless in this invitation. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we stand together, we're going to sing one song of invitation tonight as we stand, as we sing. uh, Lord, I love you. I love you, Lord. Hymn page 555. As we sing, if there's any decision you need to make, come. Come at the public invitation. I'll meet you down front as we sing.